Hello and welcome to episode 49 of the More Than Books podcast. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and in today's episode, we are going to be talking about the phenomenon of makerspaces in libraries, as well as our ILS migration. So sit back, grab a snack, and enjoy the rest of the episode. In this portion of the episode, we are joined by Jessica Omer, our Senior Circulation Assistant. Hello. To discuss the rise of the makerspace movement, as well as the integration of them into educational spaces, such as schools, libraries, and colleges. So we're just going to start off with the most basic question. What exactly is a makerspace? A makerspace is usually a public place found in like a library, community center, or university where people can go to share their interests or learn something new. It's a space where people can gather to work on projects while sharing their ideas, equipment, or knowledge, most focused on computers or technology of some kind. However, they can include almost anything. And when did the makerspace or the maker movement, as some have called it, begin? To some extent, the it's always been around, just in smaller groups, I guess. There's always been clubs, organizations affiliated with community centers or libraries that have a special interest and want to share their knowledge. But I would say like the official image of a makerspace started probably around like 2006. There were some levels, like I said, of crafting clubs or groups of people who had similar interests. Um, and it was a way to give access to technology and location and that kind of stuff. Now, why are makerspaces, as you said, makerspaces can be in a variety of different places, but why are makerspaces being placed in libraries? Libraries have always been places where people can go to learn and grow and develop through books and other resources. Putting makerspaces in libraries creates a level playing field for everyone. It gives access to technology that a lot of people can't afford to get themselves or just don't have access due to physical issues, uh, housing issues, or expense. Um, having a makerspace in a library is really no different than, say, having books or databases or like the summer reading programs. I think the biggest difference is like funding and facilities and knowledge. Academic libraries have the ability to go bigger and better than a lot of public libraries due to our access to different kinds of funding, our ability to create spaces and technology that are geared towards academics and program topics, and as well as our knowledge base, such as our faculty and staff. Now, which makerspaces have you visited in person? What are some cool or interesting things that you've seen? Um, I have been to the Do Space here in Omaha and the Nebraska Innovation Studio at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. I think, especially at like the Innovation Studio, there are a few items that I found so interesting. These include items such as plasma cutter tables, a fusion laser, a risen printer, and a digital welding machine. They also have digital sewing machines, advanced 3D printers. Um, we even saw one student creating a dress that had this underwire frame that could be shaped in any way you could imagine it, but then an electric current could be applied to the wireframe and the dress would return to its original form. Wow. <laughs> now, can you talk a little bit about um, the process of creating a makerspace for the BU library? Uh, what can patrons expect, at least starting out? Uh, will there be a theme or a lack thereof? 
Uh, for here at Bellevue, we are creating a makerspace in two stages. Our first stage will include a small mobile makerspace that will include such as our button maker, laminator, hot glue guns, and possibly a Cricut. Uh, we're also though looking at a long-term plan that we are going to do to create like a makerspace lab in the library that will include 3D printers, technology geared towards university animation programs. There are so many possibilities. Uh, it's just unimaginable. What are some potential issues that you could see cropping up in the creation of a makerspace? Some of the most common issues I would say is funding, space, because uh, certain things like laser printers or laser cutters do require a filtration system, uh, either to an outside port or an internal filtration system. Uh, you have to think about safety and consumables or supplies, and even keeping your equipment up and running or having to repair it. Most people who are familiar with makerspaces do tend to see those that are more geared towards science and technology. What are some makerspace trends that you've seen in libraries that really bring in something else you know, aside from technology? Um, as we said before, a makerspace can be practically anything. It can even include little maker kits that people can take home with them. Um, it can, can include anything from paint and canvas to jewelry making items, even baking or cooking making items. Uh, some libraries even have like cosplay creation tools, including craft phones, sealants, spray paint, adhesives, resin. Um, it can do wood or metalworking tools or even like fabric design. What do you think is the next step or the next iteration evolution of the Makerspace library? Many people say that the future of the Makerspace is turning it from a Makerspace into what has been termed a solution space, where rather than just making things, we are using Makerspaces to resolve community-based issues such as reducing our carbon footprint, cleaner air, water, recycling, and more. Now, just to end things off with a fun question, what is the first thing that you plan to make in the Bellevue University makerspace? Oh, that's a hard question. The nice thing about some of the stuff we have, you can do make personal buttons, you can create uh, stickers, you can do unlimited amount of things. It pretty much is anything I could ever imagine. <laughs> Was there anything that you wanted to uh, end our interview with? Um, any events that you would like to promote? Upcoming on August 27th of 2022, the library will be having a BruinCon event uh, in our student center here from 5 to 8, where we will have local vendors selling many, many geek-themed items. There will be cosplay, panel discussions, it should be a really fun event. You can come and take part in our cosplay contest or have your picture taken in front of a green screen. It should be a pretty fun night. Well, Jessica, thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for having me. That's all for this portion of the episode. Stay tuned to hear our interview with Joel on the new migration to our new Ex Libris slash Alma system. Hello and welcome to Tech Talk. This is our segment where we talk about everything dealing with technology and how it impacts libraries. With me today, I have Joel Hartung, Assistant Director of Library Systems. Hello. Um, I, I used to host this podcast. It's been a couple years, but you may remember me from more than books podcast episodes one through like 40. I don't quite remember how many episodes I that was I think it was on. 43. Yeah, 43. Okay. So 
been about two years since I've last been on an episode, but uh, I'm excited to be back. Yeah, thank you so much for being here with us today. So today we are going to be talking about Alma D and the Ex Libris migration. To start off the discussion, could you tell us a little bit about the new system? Yeah, okay, so a little background. So you may not know much about library systems. This is an assumption. I don't know. Uh, they've been around for a long time, but it is basically the software that runs the back end of library services. So our catalog, our cataloging platform, our circulation platform, our user database, it is the tool that kind of brings it all together, allows us to add items to our collection, have a place where you can find the items, and check items out and keep records of all of that fun stuff. So for the last 20 years or so, long before I worked here, we were using a ILS system, that integrated library system, from a company called Circe Dynex. And we've been on that platform for a long time. It's, it had worked well for us. Uh, we originally were part of a bigger consortium of libraries uh, that kind of shared the platform. Over time, um, those kind of libraries went their separate ways, and then it was just us and one other university that was sharing our catalog. A couple years ago, that university unfortunately closed down, so it was just us on our own. And it had been, you know, 20-some years since I've uh, been on this platform. So we thought it was probably time to start looking and seeing what else was out there technology-wise, which brought us to Alma from Ex Libris. Uh, that's the vendor that uh, makes... Al Alma's the name of the platform. The vendor is Ex Libris. And there's a couple other buzzwords that you're never going to need to know. You mentioned Alma D. That's, that's one of them. Um, Primo, that's another one. That's the search engine. It's, it's not important, that information. What's important is that it is the infrastructure that supports what we do here in the library every step of the way. So uh, the new system, um, they call it a library services platform, um, is a much more modern system than what we had before. It's cloud-based, uh, so rather than having a staff client on our desktop computer, we can log into it on, from any web browser. We can use it on a tablet. I could use it on my phone. We can have full access to all staff applications directly in, the, in a web browser. And that includes our circulation, cataloging, serials, acquisitions, and much more, electronic e-resource management, it's all built into the platform. From a end-user perspective, most of that won't be affecting you. I don't want to get too far ahead of uh, myself because I know that I'll be talking about that a little bit later on, but the big changes will be with our catalog, discovery search, and digital archives from an end-user perspective. Um, rather than having separate interfaces for all of those like we currently have, it'll be a unified search interface. So that'll be something that we'll talk a little bit more in detail about later. And what has this migration journey been like so far? What all has gone into it? Uh, I, I can't even begin. Uh, it's been a long journey. We've actually been working towards this for around three to four years in total. It started with just an exploratory committee that uh, we put together here in the library a couple years ago. And that was when, you know, after we found out that uh, the other university was closing its doors, we had three years left in our contract. And so we decided that we wanted to start looking into our options then. So it's been quite a few years. So we did, we had that exploratory committee. We looked at all the vendors that were out there. We conducted an RFP process, that's a request for proposal, and we solicited proposals from the vendors that we identified. They gave presentations, we had a whole selection process, 
So that was the first three years, that whole process. The actual migration um, we'd been working on for most of the last year. We, it really got going, I think, uh, in early, late summer, early fall last year. And there's actually two migrations for this project. We have kind of two projects going on at the same time, parallel to one another. So our, our main major migration is the move from Circe Dynix to Alma. Um, that's our catalog and library data and all of that fun stuff. And the other migration is moving from our digital archives platform, ContentDM, into Alma. So we're kind of migrating all of our data and uh, information from two separate systems into one system. We have weekly meetings. We've had weekly meetings going on for most of the last year. It started with bi-weekly, and then in the fall it turned into weekly, and it's been going on that way for six months now, it feels like. <laughs> In-depth training, we have to go through all sorts of tutorials and knowledge packs and activities. We had to get, so they did the data extraction from our current system, and that include, included our bibliographic records, patron accounts, fines and fee data, circulation data. They extracted that data from our current system and put it into the new system, but before they could import it, we had to validate that data and do field mapping because fields in, in the data uh, structure in our current system don't necessarily match up with the data structure of the new system, so they might have different names or different meanings, so we had to basically match the fields from our current system with the new field in our new system. We had to go through the e-resource activation process and make sure that our electronic resources were set up, do system configuration, data review, so once everything was imported into our current system, We've been having to go through and check to make sure it's it imported correctly. Check to see if we like how things are looking, making sure there's no major errors or issues with any of our data, and testing the system configuration, making sure everything's working the way we expect it to. And third-party integrations is another thing that we're working on. And that, that would be our single sign-on system and our um, student information system user load. So... Basically, we'll get a file from our student information system on campus, and it'll create user accounts in our new system. And that way, if a new student enrolls, it should automatically add them to our database. So there's a lot that goes into this. <laughs> there's a lot of testing. It's been the largest project I've ever worked on here, larger than when I did the, I did the website uh, redesign uh, about four or five years ago. And before this, that was the largest project I had worked on. Next week, we have staff training on the system, and that's three full days that is uh, involving all of our full-time library staff. So it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot to manage right now. And what made Ex Libris stand out against the other vendors? I We liked the more modern touches that Ex Libris had. Um, it was also very highly... Um, recommended to us by other librarians in the area. I know that a number of the universities in Nebraska have switched to Ex Libris, and um, by us moving to Ex Libris, it has kind of given us an opportunity to rebuild um, some of those community connections, maybe have local user groups again. It's something that we haven't been able to do for a while, not just because of the pandemic, but because a lot of people have moved away from the system that we were using. Um, so being able to have local resources in the area um, that we can work with and talk to about uh, 
configurations and updates, but also it's just one of the fastest growing systems right now. Um, I think from a user interface and usability standpoint, it, it was definitely the one that I was most interested in throughout the, the process. So what has been your favorite part of the migration process so far? <laughs> I mean, I guess my favorite part has really been getting my hands on the system once they uh, loaded our data and actually released it to us um, because it was kind of like, oh, we're finally seeing all this work we've been doing for the longest time is, is paying off. It's real now. We have access to our system. We have access to our data. Um, we can change things. Um, I can get hands-on actual training with, with our actual system. That's been nice. Yeah, and the most challenging part? <laughs> yeah, the most challenging part would be uh, data review has been um, probably the most in-depth part. Um, that and just the constant uh, constant meetings and having weekly tasks to do when finding time for it. I've been doing a lot of the actual configuration myself, although I have had a lot of assistance from all library staff members, from many library staff members. I mean, you, Sierra, has been working on the Alma digital um, transition since she's in charge of the archives, um, and that's been going great. Um, so I really do appreciate all of help, um, but it is a lot of work, and I definitely understand um, feeling a little burnout <laughs> at times um, with all the, the meetings. As of the release date of this podcast, where would we be currently on the project timeline? Right now, we're still, I would, I guess, call it the implementation phase. So we're starting our third-party integrations right now. Um, that includes our student information system user load that I mentioned as well as our Bruin Connect single sign-on integration. Um, and we're still kind of finalizing the data review and configuration review. And like I said, staff training is next week. So we are kind of entering the end game or end stage of the project. Uh, Go live will not be until July. I think July 12th is the date that we're scheduled to go live uh, this year. So before Go Live, um, after we're done with training, um, we do another data extract um, in late uh, in late June, and then we'll have kind of a technical freeze where we can't, after that second data extract, we can't catalog any items because um, we're not going to be using the old system for that. Um, so we'll have like that technical freeze for a couple weeks, and then we'll have a um, uh, circulation freeze. Um, a couple days, about a week before we actually go live, where we won't be able to use our current system for checking out items because that data will be in the process of being, that final data import will be in the process of being put into the new system. So there's a lot uh, a lot to do still. Like once we um, start with those next data extracts, they're kind of going to rewipe our system and clean it up again. And then we'll just have to make sure that final configuration is done that our um, final data load is done and looks good and that uh, staff know what they're doing when we go live. That'll be the, the big thing. And what can patrons expect with this new system? Yeah, as, as I mentioned, most of the changes will be internal on the staff side. However, there will be a number of notable patron-facing changes, including that new unified search experience that I talked about. 
So we're no longer going to have separate search engines for different types of, uh, of library records. So right now we have our e-catalog, which is kind of specialized in our actual like physical library items. And then we have our discovery search, which we use for finding ebooks and uh, um, electronic journal resources and other items like that. And then we also have our uh, content DM digital archives. So rather than having different interfaces for all of those items, we're going to have one single unified search interface. It will simplify things dramatically from a patron side and also from a management side. Uh, and that will be nice. Uh, so it's the new, our new, it's called Primo Discovery Search, though you're never going to really see the word Primo on anything because it'll be customized for us. Um, and that'll include our full library catalog, uh, journal archives, ebooks, digital archives, and more from a single unified search interface. Uh, and yeah, so that'll be the biggest change. Uh, the also a big change will be the integration with the university's Bruin Connect single sign-on service. So users will now be able to use their Bruin credentials uh, to log into their library account, and view their checkouts, renew items, create title lists and store them, and more. So that's a very big change that we haven't had before when it comes to our library catalog. We do currently have Bruin Connect single sign-on with library databases, but our catalog and our library system never had that integration. So that will be a big user change. Well, that brings this interview to a close. Do you have any closing <laughs> remarks or anything that you'd like to plug? Yeah, so um, I will be featuring the new library services platform in the Summer More Than Books newsletter, so be on the lookout for that. The article will be a deep dive on the system and the migration process, so that'll be coming this summer. I think that's all for this segment of the podcast. I'm Sierra, and... I'm Joel. Thank you for having me. It's uh, good to be back, even if I'm just popping in for a little bit. <laughs> no, I'll have you for the summer reading podcast. Yeah, all right, sounds good. If you've made it this far, thank you so much for listening. This was episode 49 of the More Than Books podcast. I'm your host, Sierra Whitfield, and I'm signing off.